Okay. All right. Back once again by popular demand. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Notes from the Aleph. Aleph is a high point from which all things are visible, and from our vantage point, we'll be looking at tabletop role-playing games, their design, and the theory behind those designs. Around here, our motto is to be fair, build up, and have fun. I'm your host, Griffin Burrow, joined by our editor, Theta, our local designer, Norman Rafferty, and our good friend and GM, Red Rabbit. When it comes to tabletop games, I have 15 years of experience running, playing, and frequently fixing problematic rule sets of table, pronouns he, him, and they, them. Red. Okay, I am Red Rabbit. I do professional GMing, and I'm currently running our Wednesday morning game of Ironclaw 2nd Edition. I also run games of Vampire the Masquerade and Dungeons and Dragons 5th Edition, both of them. I also consider myself a student of narrative and game design. And Rafferty. Uh, hello, um, this is my cat, is Zenith. Uh, uh, he's neutered, so I don't really know how he identifies. I'm Norman Rafferty, he, him, Sanguine Games. Uh, I'm not as interesting as the cat, but I, I do know slightly more about game. Is that right? Ah, put the cat on. My, my Your fourth story. member, give, him a, give them a camera. There we go. Well, we already had Red's cat. I know, yeah. They're, I've got two of them. I've, I've got to bring the puppy in then. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta equalize this. Today's theme is just us showing off our pets. That's what you all exactly, exactly. This is the pet podcast, everyone. Uh, well, let's go ahead and get into it. So, I love GMing. I love running games. I love making every little minute detail. I love putting it all together and putting it into motion and making sure that I personally know everything about the system so I can just keep things flowing and running smoothly at the table. But it is a lot of work. And when you're not really confident or familiar with the system that you want to run, the task really is an absolute mountain to climb. So it's not really surprising that most people sort of shy away from taking the reins and deciding to take up the task of becoming a game master and handling the fun of like four other people. There are ways, however, to reduce or spread out this workload to smoothly onboard people into the process of running and even make running the game part of the game itself and not a separate solo task that you personally have to take care of. So today we're going to talk about making running part of the game. So, Rafferty, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? What do you got? Oh, um, I, I like rules. Um, I mean, <laughs> they're uh, fun. I'm definitely like, you know, the old school grognard. I love the games with lots of moving parts. I've played Rollmaster for fun. Um, so, so um, yeah, but um, no, uh, I've also written more than one um, how to master a game, or as we like to call it, hosting a game, because that sounds better. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, the usual advice I have for GMs is you can get away. Uh, all right. You. The, each player is going to fixate on what their character's agency is. And most of them are probably only going to learn rules that are relevant to themselves. Uh, if they learn any rules at all, many people won't learn any rules at all. So you as the GM can use that to your benefit. Cause I always go with the Eliza method. So when a player says, oh, I want to swing from the chandelier, you know, as a GM, this is you know, a lot of GM books will tell you, well, decide on a skill. No, you don't have to flip this around. And as a GM, you can just say, well, what abilities or skills do you have that will let you handle and immediately flip that around to the players. And that's the big advice we always give to GMs. It's like whenever a player tries to do anything, ask them, OK, how would your character do this? And make them look it up. Make them learn the rules. Um, they'll often <laughs> give you they'll often give you very silly answers. but um, uh, I find if you put the responsibility on the players, like 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 you know, ask them, okay, what do you have that can do it? Players do 
like to become engaged in the game and you ask them what they think. So suddenly they go, oh crap, I have to learn the And uh, so that can get the players very engaged in looking at their sheets and deciding what to do and you can learn more. And that that's the, you know, knee-jerk advice I have. You know, it, it's, you don't, as the GM, you can ask the players what rules they want to use. You're allowed. There you go. So that's a good way. Just go ahead and sort of try to offload that onto other people. And it, it kind of works a good bit. I've definitely gone ahead and a few times said, hey, these are sort of your powers. Tell me how they work. Tell me what I'm mm. supposed to be doing with my guys because I need to run them and have them react. This is your show. And and I think definitely giving them the spotlight for that definitely kind of helps out a little bit. What do you think, Red? Well, um... <clears throat> I'll tell you in this topic, I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say because um, I'm someone who needs no, uh, I mean, I'll still, I'll still vamp. I'll give you my perspective. I'm someone who (laughs) needs no encouragement to start trying to run a game. Um, The last three games that I learned to play, I learned to play while I was running them. So, uh, and, and I do think you have to be a little bit crazy to attempt that. You also need to have a group of people who are very, forgiving or understanding or just eager to play the game right i mean i and i think it also helps to have people with a lot of familiarity with the system as well um i will say that i think in my position it pays to not have too much of an ego or be willing to play with people who have more experience than you do i think you could check out our wednesday game for a good example of that um because everybody's just there to to have fun generally people are are happy that they get to play the game rather than run it so they're happy to lend you a hand when you need it but overall i'd be very curious to see um to to see systems or game systems i don't know if you guys have any recommendations but systems that like try to sweeten the pot for people running like for people who have to learn the rules i do have an example and it's board games where there oh, okay. is a small number of them out there where you can have a set of players and then a host position which runs various monsters, encounters, or traps. Descent mm-hmm. would very much be this sort of game. Uh, and Gloomhaven. that's a game where you are mm-hmm. a player even if you are the one who is running the dungeon. Everyone is kind of like helping with the setup because it's it's a board game. You, you put the figures where they're supposed to be that the book says. It's fine. But the <laughs> GM is someone who's also beholden to a set of rules and are playing their specific game that interacts with the players' games. And they both have some conflicting objective here. And I think those are that's maybe a good way to maybe like look forward in like how to maybe design towards the future of these things where you can say hey gm you don't have to do all the work here's your position and the things that you're supposed to do then maybe say draw from another game where there's a few of them out there where everyone gets together has their session and says like let's build the world together let's build this society together we were setting up one recently um i think it was mystic empyrean yeah. Where we went ahead and we just build whole societies, worlds, a cosmology, and it's like, hey, cool. The individual GM isn't the person who has to do that. They can focus on playing their side of the game. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a weird thing because um, old school, older games used to invite players to do lore. Like it mm-hmm. used to be when you sat down to play, you know, if you look at like D&D 1 or D&D 2, um, you're, you could build a cleric. As a cleric, you must worship a single deity. That's the only choice they present to you. A single deal. Okay. Yep. But they, but they don't give you a list. You just make one up, I guess. It's like, so I, I get to, I get to make up my own religion. 
what? Yeah. Um, like, like, doesn't that have repercussions that there would be, you know, a whole system and pantheon? Like, if I say I worship Aphrodite, I've just invoked the entire Greco-Roman mythos uh, into the game. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of extent to the world building. Well, around D&D 3 and now 4 and 5, they crush that. And they tell you, no, no, here's the list of deities. Here's St. Cuthbert and the Raven Queen and all that jazz. Um, you know, here's, um, you know, uh, you know what it is. Uh, it, it's weird because, like, now it's kind of, um, well, getting away from the from this whole discussion here. Um, <laughs> uh, now they've gotten a lot more uh, presenting, like, like narrowing people's expectation into you will be a player object uh, and, and don't hope for too much. I mean, a lot of games <laughs> are like that. And then the GM is expected to run the entire world. There are games, you know, I'll flip this around, like we just said Mystic Imperium, there's other games uh, that allow players to build the world together. Uh, that they'll have a session zero where you sit down and you plot out a, a lot of details and guide that. Like the Wicked Ones game that we were in, we were, um, you know, we streamed, we were very uh, flexible uh, about that and letting, you know, players decide, well, this is where the frog people are. This is a tower filled with a necromancer uh, yeah, and within that example, each character set actually has an ability that says, hey, go ahead and you can spend a resource and define something brand new about the world, specifically one to your advantage. Right. And I, I tend mm -hmm. to enjoy games like that because I feel like we're part of the story. And by definition, it's stuff we care about because we wouldn't be inventing stuff we didn't care about. Uh, I, I tend to shy away from very uh, lore heavy games where I feel like the game master is hitting me like I'm I'm. I apologize in advance, Red. I tend to shy away from oh, games boy. like Empire, which have thousands of pages of already built-in lore where it turns out every historical event had vampires involved in something. Oh, oh. Oh, gosh. Oh, as the as the writer of Ironclaw, I have some very strong feelings that I can't articulate All right now. Please continue. Oh, no, you should. Uh, you can take me. I mean, when we wrote Ironclaw, we tried to leave a lot of stuff uh, open. We're not as specific mm. about it. Like, like my favorite question. Okay, what year is it? Like, what year does Ironclaw take place in? I don't know. There's a lot. There's a calendar. There's a lot of stuff that happened. I, I, I know uh, what it is, but, but, like, but, but, moving on before we start talking about how great mm -hmm. my the, those were a lot of what we wrote in Ironclaw are supposed to be tools for the GM, where it's like, hey, something happened a long time ago that could be interpreted multiple ways. Like, there's a there, there, yeah. there's like a lot of lore that's nebulous in that. Whereas most people, when they come to a game, they want to see stuff. And really what we're getting at is the GM. I mean, like, like I wouldn't feel comfortable running a vampire game as a GM because anything I said about vampires, a player could pull out a vampire book and say, that's not the actual lore. Uh, yeah. This has definitely happened right. to me with franchises. Like I've run and played in Star Trek games and Star Wars games. People have strong opinions about that kind of lore. Mm -hmm. Oh, so, yes, they do. Those are very yeah. concrete in a way. Well, well, but see, it's frustrating because like we've already talked in the past, is role-playing a storytelling exercise or is it a gaming exercise? And as a storytelling exercise, people who write Star Wars and Star Trek stories throw out or contradict huge sections of the lore all the time. And it still makes it onto the screen. Yeah. And people still go to see it. Yeah. Right, because they're not these fans that are hyper-invested in the things that they've already seen and want to see it again. They're people who have to write a new narrative. Well, it's weird, because, like, you know, somebody, someone went to go see Star Wars, 
You know, someone, you know, went to go see The Force Awakens and all that kind of stuff. Someone went to go see the Transformers <laughs> movies. Apparently millions Some did. people regret it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but, they, but they, it is interesting to compare and contrast, like, the Star Wars and, say, Vampire and Iron Claw. Because I think, like, when it comes to Vampire and Iron Claw, you don't have to know the lore. And even if you do as a player character you're not necessarily supposed to know everything that's going on. I don't think that there's any case where you should say, I have a vampire character here I just generated, and they happen to know the entire 20,000 uh, long year lore of every single vampire clan in existence. They're supposed to be secret, right? Uh, I, I want to tell you realistically what happens, because yeah, when people are, we're, we're talking today about what intimidates people from being a game master. What intimidates me from being a game master is when I show up at the table and I say, okay, you know, I, I need to compose something so the Malkavians have this plot here. They're going to do something. Malkavians, they only believe in chaos. They would never work together like this and start quoting to me. I mean, using this as an example, but I mean, would we'll start mm -hmm. quoting me something that was in a recent novel or something like that or specific mm -hmm. characters. Now, I could, you know, like once again, GMV, I could say, well, this isn't your vampire. This isn't the, this isn't the game you like. This is my <laughs> game. That's the slippery slope, right? Right. I mean, like you can pull that off, but if you, if, I mean, it, it's a mixed message here. If the game is lore heavy, start telling people you're going to contradict the lore. Yeah. Then mm -hmm. the, this is what scares people away from the GM seat. If somebody yeah. sat down the GM seat and the first time they did that, one out of the four to six players did that to them, the odds are pretty high they would, yeah. they would get told. Like, like I had trouble getting the Dresden Files game. I couldn't find a GM to run Dresden Files, despite the fact that like Dresden Files isn't that big. There's only only like eight to twelve novels about it, you know, mm -hmm. like like and just the novels, not even the TV show. I couldn't get someone because they were too scared uh, <laughs> of, of rules and lore to run Dres like something as tiny as that. And, and yeah. um, you know, whether we agree it's tiny or not, that is an obstacle for GMs. That's really why if you want to get a GM to run something. I mean, that's why I'm kind of annoyed that it's creeping into D&D &D 5. Like, the writing in D&D &D 5, they specifically, you know, define what tieflings and dragonborns are. And spe you know, like, orcs are all creatures of inherent evil. And, like, like very narrow definitions of what these things are supposed to be. Yeah. That uh, it's less, like, so if a GM came to this and had a different interpretation, they have to fight the rulebook on it. And that kind of, not, you know, we're angry people. Guys, just watch our stream. <laughs> That's what makes us GMs. We're angry and we love, and we love numbers. We are turbo nerds. We can I be have spreadsheets. But a thing that's scaring a lot of people away from the GM seat is not everybody's angry and not everybody knows number. Yeah. I think um, now might be time to wheel out Dungeon World because it is a game that, um, I have read way more times than I have played, but it has a lot of very interesting approaches. And I think a lot of these approaches have kind of trickled down into a lot of modern game design. Um, but just based on the last few topics that we touched on today, um, there is an emphasis on basically designing lore as through play, defining your... Uh, oh yeah, because we because we Dungeon World is a power by the apocalypse powered yes. by the apocalypse game uh like apocalypse world which was the inspiration for it mm -hmm. um, has a lot of set you know is aggressively aggressively anti-lore is how i want to describe it um okay that went very well for apocalypse world because it's they keep saying it's the apocalypse the world died and you don't know how it happened 
GMs can do anything they want. Have lots of sex. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, they spend almost no time at all on lore, which, you know, is a weird paradox because, you know, gamers will say where, you know, when they go to buy your game, ask where the lore is. It's like, well, games like, you know, Dungeon World Sims, you've already played D&D. You know what elves are. Um, yeah. <laughs> which on the one hand is scary, but on the other hand, um, because these games are very simple and immediate, um, they also do something that, um, you know, uh, Powered by the Pogdups and Blades in the Dark have the players do all of the die rolling. Yeah, yep. Mm -hmm. And that is an interesting idea, because first of all, it means that the players feel like they're the repository of all rules, which makes it easier to GM. But repeatedly, it means that if the GM is going to screw with the player, um, there's no hidden rolling. Indeed, indeed. So, so there's no. Ra- I mean, I, I think um, Blades in the Dark added the uh, fate roll, or what do they call it, something like that, where the GM can just tell the players to roll some dice because they want something random to happen. But the play, the GM, yeah. or, or the GM rolls it in secret and doesn't tell the players, you know, because Blades in the Dark pointedly, you know, like I know Wicked ones pointedly added that. But yeah. I'd like to point out that, like, yeah, you know, just their spot rule in general too. I think, right? Just like, yeah, just roll like two dice and just see, like, did it work or did it not? Right. But pointedly, uh, I mean, like, like that's an interesting idea that is in like powered by the apocalypse in its core. Says yeah. the DM never rolls anything in secret. The players well, are the stars. Yeah. Everybody knows everything that's going on, which is an interesting style of game master. It and is. I think, um, I think uh, it takes it a step for- further than that too, because we were talking about, um, you know, system mastery and and games that sort of tell you, you know. A lot of games tell the players what they can and can't do. The Powered by the Apocalypse games, or at the very least Dungeon World, it prescribes how the GM should play as well. It tells you, hey, based on their role, these are the kinds of things that you can do. And obviously, in many cases, you can do whatever you want. But it like it actually gives you a checklist of items that is going to change depending on the situation, depending on the world state and the players involved. But mostly that checklist of items are like, what do you do now? Well, you can use any of these for inspiration. These are the kinds of things that you should do. And based on the die roll, here are the kind of things that you have to do. Uh, You know, a super success, you know, a regular success on this gather information means that the GM has to tell you one of the following pieces of information based on the situation. A critical means they have to tell you three of the following pieces of information. And I there's something very like, I don't know, very fascinating to me about that notion that like the GM is playing the game, too. Uh, There are rules for them as well that govern what they can and cannot do. Well, I, I like that you look at it as the GM is playing the game because, like, a lot of uh, a novice game master mistake I see a lot is the GMs don't want to tell anybody anything because mm. GM was told that uh, I'm here to challenge the player and I don't want to over volunteer information. I don't want to mm. give them an it. Well, if I'm here to beat them, why would I tell them how to beat me? That goes back to our playing the lose podcast we just had. It's like, no, 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 no. You're supposed to tell them stuff. They're not. They're idiots. They're not going to know. It's a game. They're playing this to have fun. They're howling half here. They're on their cell phone watching kitty videos, whatever people do. Um, you know, uh, you, you, you got to put you, it up in neon lights for them. And letting them, you know, as at first I had, a, a, I had a, you know, I was trying to parse the power by the apocalypse that allows you to like read any situation. What's going on here? Who's in charge? Here? And ask all those questions. Cause I kept thinking like, well, isn't that stuff people would know? But then I thought, no, it might be that the players would come with their own assumptions. They wouldn't think to ask these. And the right. GM might not know 
uh, you know, might not frame it in that idea. And then there was um, building on this was Fate's uh, Spirit of the Century, which came up with the idea of aspects where players are supposed to be able to, you know, spend story points specifically invoke the setting, like the room, like it's dark, so I want to hide uh, or, um, you know, this cluttered, so I want to pick up an object and hit someone with it in ways that didn't have maps because we're, we're Grognards guys, we use maps. But people who were doing theater of the mind, um, you know, these were tools to let the players take some of the burden away from the GM and have the players try to be creative in the environment. Because I would agree that when you have maps and you have, you know, D&D murder hobos uh, and rigid rules of improvised weapons don't work, here's your sword, you will get players who very much just move on the map and do the same thing over and over again. And um it, that can feel very tedious and leave the GM in charge of wargaming, which is something I want to talk about, but I, I didn't like, take cut off Griffin. Get mm. Right. To... Well, we can put a pin on that and come back to it later. Um, I think there's a, a subject I probably do want to kind of bring up to this conversation, which is the idea of a GM-less game where mm. nobody is in charge whatsoever. And uh, I can yeah. definitely see that this has happened a lot in board games where, you know, you have a cooperative setup between several players working against a pre-existing scenario. But those are usually like pre-written and pre-set up. Even uh, Eldritch Horror, where there's a lot of random elements, you have yeah. like your one big monster and then the uh, effects that they have and like their deck is set up in a specific way. Starting the game. Yeah. Uh, a few of me and my friends have attempted a few times to create a GMless dungeon crawl because that's the easiest thing to set up it's like oh mm -hmm. yeah you know we'll each contribute a room we'll contribute some ideas for encounters or traps and then just randomly draw them off the deck and see what comes up next uh and i think there's maybe like something in interesting maybe in this type of play where the rule the person who's doing the hosting is in fact just the rules themselves um and that kind of goes back to our the players like handling those kind of things. What do you think about like setting up an entire RPG where no one is in charge? I mean, has Red played that? Uh, have I played a game? Uh, I think yeah, the yeah, only man. well, no. I mean, I guess I've played Fiasco. That's a GMless system. <laughs> I've played Microscope. There you go. And so, how did that go for you? What are your thoughts on it? I enjoy it. Um, I think I enjoy it because it creates a different sort of dynamic. I when I'm playing a, I think when you're when there's a GM, there's an obvious dynamic at the table where it's like, OK, we're the ones who are playing. You're the one who is going to shut down our ideas or you're the one that we have to convince. Right. And it creates a, a different dynamic when uh, when playing a GMless game, I kind of approach it like, well, in the case of Fiasco, I guess I approach it like I'm GMing a game, but I just um do whatever the hell I want and I go crazy. And if I can like screw people over, I do without any kind of guilt. So that's, that's the biggest difference, but it's it nice to have of, rules. Yeah. I'm sorry. That is the goal of fiasco. That's why it works so well. Yeah. That's why it works so well. Right. But I think that's true. I mean, that's why I think um, dungeon world, uh, you know, not to bring it back. I think dungeon world telling you the kind of things that you can do is great. Maybe it's kind of like training wheels for people who are, have experience. But having that rules framework, like in Fiasco, and to a lesser extent in Dungeon Worlds, uh, does make it easier. You don't have to worry so much about whether or not the thing you're doing is right or is legal. You can kind of just lean on the rules to take that weight off your mind. And that can make for a very fun game. So I'm for it. I haven't played a game as in-depth as or simulationist as something like a D&D &D that was gemless. I know that Descent and Gloomhaven are very popular. 
but also the combat is usually when I tune out of games like D&D, and so I, I'm afraid that I would just tune out of those games as well. Yeah, I, right. I think we would need to clarify that um, there are GM-less games where it's you versus a structure, like, you know, yeah. Elder Horror yeah. is you versus the board game. There are also those fighting fantasy books or lone wolf, uh, um, you know, adventure books that, uh, you know, in the 80s, there was a thriving solo where you pull up the book and you, you know, go to, from program to counter, program to counter. But once again, there might be no game master here, but it's you versus a structure. We're back in a computer game. You wouldn't describe right. Horizon Zero Dawn as a GM-less game. The computer is taking on the role of moderating your activity. And right. just with that, you run into a problem where they always, well, a big selling point that's described with role-playing games is how it's theater of the mind and it's your imagination. that You're not beholden to just the rules that are in the book. You can go off book and, you know, do new behavior or do things that were unexpected and strange, more so than the way any computer or book or board game could have predicted. Right. And uh, that, uh, you know, there is GM-less role-play in that regard. Usually you'll see that a lot in LARPs or on um, uh, online forums hmm. uh, role play, uh, you know, mostly because it's easier for people to get together and because especially online forums are anonymous, people will feel bolder hmm. uh, to do certain things. Uh, and the rules are supposed to exist to moderate uh, play in between people. Uh, those can be very frustrating, though, because so really like the purpose of the role playing game is to tell you when you lose or when you can't do something because like the, right. a good example is i don't know if kids still play cops and robbers i'm so old but if you mm. said bang you're dead and the other person says no i'm not you don't have a way to arbitrate that you can't do anything to anyone unless they consent to having it done to them and few people consent to losing mm -hmm. so mm. you could put some role-playing game metric in the way that some way to arbitrate it like rock paper scissors uh, or cards or dice to go ahead uh, and have, if we have a dispute, we can go ahead and put it to those cards. But of course, that means we have to have the way the dispute is framed uh, right. in terms of that. That can work, but then you run into the other problem of nothing happens unless someone incites to do it. Mm -hmm. Like if you're in a GM-less game, you don't have adventures unless something happens. Now, like you said, well, what if I draw cards or what if I, and, and those are good ideas, but once again, you brought in something to master the game for you. You brought in a third-party resource right. to form you with ideas. Uh, there might be no GM that tells us what we can and cannot do as players. We might be fighting a neutral context. And you can have players who get into that. There's some good games uh, like that. Um, but it will be a different experience. It, it's not going to be... Uh, it's going to be a lot of us standing around and talking about what we would do and a lot of improv. It'd be, I guess, paradoxically, a lot like some of the streams uh, that you see. Uh, it's very challenging because you would have to have some sort of resource that you're pulling from, and it's not going to have as much dynamics. Like, you can't have what I described earlier in our playing to lose. You don't have villains responding because you'd be drawing random cards of random events. So either either we would have to decide how the villains do it, in which case the villains aren't plotting in secret. We know what they're doing. Right. Uh, or there's something that that is a book or something like that that would have it happen. So, I mean, it's a kind of a sliding scale. You could have it rules light and there's technically no game master. But at some point, you know, if you don't have something from without, something that's not us imposing yeah. some sort of structure that we can't predict or know or decide, 
you run the risk of the game becoming very stagnant. It's just a bunch of people standing around talking about how cool they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I I can see that. I think minimizing the external forces, if the game focuses on the interactions of the players at the table, it's probably going to be more successful GM-less because the more that the... Well, what you said, Rafferty, the more that the external forces have to be represented and no one at the table is taking responsibility for them, the more difficult that is going to be. Well, it, it, uh, it's more successful, but also this usually works better short term. I mentioned fiasco really encourages you to screw over the other players. That's not a campaign. Yeah, and, right. And, and that's the problem you're ever into, that if you have characters that you want to level up, um, that's why players versus environment or players versus in seeds is the primary in gaming because we can whoop those guys all we want and then we level up and feel better about yeah. ourselves if it's a game where we're constantly fighting each other we can run into the problem of where some people are going to lose or their characters are going to be destroyed mm-hmm. that's fine if it's short term like fiasco where we expect everybody to die or paranoia which is a role-playing game about you know trying to screw one another over and not get caught but if you're trying you know when you start getting into the vampire territory you know, which is very popular with LARPing and stuff. Now we're running into problems because Vampire clearly has leveling up mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder too, if, I mean, I guess if we're defining like modern role-playing or the role-playing that we're talking about as these very dynamic experiences where people have a lot of external forces to like react against, I mean, part of part of what makes role playing games so good is having that human element of GMing that yeah. is kind of, you know, running things. So that's it's a difficult one to get around, although you see a lot of push for automation, even in these popular games where you get random tables, you get a lot of like, hey, you know, roll to see what happens next is a big part of oh, yeah, emerging I mean, gameplay design. That goes back to like you know, 70s, 80s. They had random encounter tables and random treasure tables. They still do. Right? If you just said, hey, instead of the guy over there making these random wandering monster rolls, what if we just took turns doing it around the table and then we see what happens? Right. Um, well, and here's where we're getting into something, which is the GM is technically a curator. Mm-hmm. All of the advice is going to tell you, like when we say the GM can change dice or ignore rules when they want to, that's curating. So yeah. it's supposed to be that when the GM rolls something random and the random result isn't appropriate or is semi-appropriate needs to be tweaked, the GM is allowed to change it. Like um, I, one of my big ones was when we were um, playing uh, the Demon Web Quest, which starts off where we walk along the road from one major city to another major city. And the GM rolls some dice and says, you are ambushed by 80 ogres. And then he paused and said, but 70 of them leave in disgust because this is stupid. <laughs> because the idea that, remember, major city, another major city on a highly traveled road. Why are there 80 ogres here? Mm-hmm. Like it was just, yeah. That was too ridiculous. And, and also, like, this will take us all day. Whereas 10 ogres, you know, it'll... I mean, he could have just said there were 10 ogres, but if he went by the random roll, it would have been 80. And that's what yeah, we mean by pretty crazy. We still had a tough time defeating 10 ogres, and 10 ogre bandits made a lot more sense of how, you know, they weren't getting immediately caught or killed by the giants who live here. Come on, let's be yeah. serious. But, um, you know, l- like, that's what I'm getting at, like, curated. That, yeah. That's that got lost. Like, we talked about this before, um, you know, in our previous podcast. Um, like, a lot of people will tell you advice, like, you're not supposed to run the Tomb of Horrors as written. 
you're supposed to make changes to it as a GM to go ahead and cure it. And that's the one of what, what's starting to get annoying about trying to get a new GM. GMs are somehow supposed to be able to read the room, to know uh, how the game works and how it doesn't, and how to fix it to make sure it runs faster and on time. And yeah. all three things I just said, I have had people fight me on that. Yeah, there's like a lot of simultaneous judgment calls you have to do there where you have to literally become a designer for half a moment while also storytelling, while also entertaining your local friends and also order them pizza at the same time. It's it's a lot of things to juggle (laughs) in the same moment. Right. That's that's why I'm I'm kind of glad that we're seeing critical role and that kind of stuff, because those guys are applying theater and storytelling techniques to the game. Like I've always argued that that the game, you know, the game stalls because the GM didn't make it happen. The GM can always make it happen. People are fond of telling you two guys just burst in the door with guns. The GM can declare, hey, you guys waited too long and the world was destroyed. Screw you. Um, the the GM can make stuff happen faster. But I've met a lot of GM, you know, novice even experienced ones, who just get frustrated or 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 seize up because they're thinking of all the things that could be happening of provisions and die rolls and mechanisms in their heads. Uh, and, and the action just grinds to a halt and players get yeah. bored or frustrated because nothing's happening and they're not reading the, you know, like in other words, understanding it. And that's a skill set that um, I, I think the game is fighting people on it because once again, you pick up D&D and there's 90% of the rule book is about how orcs are evil and here's their challenge rating and here's the extra legendary actions Beholder gets. By the way, you should be a good genius. Uh, I've just, heard a lot of do well, stupid. Obviously, just, <laughs> I've heard a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of attacks levied against the modern fifth edition dungeon masters guide. I don't think that they're unwarranted. When I look at it, I think it's definitely it, it feels to me like it's being written to a, an audience that already has some experience doing this, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a failure. Honestly, when you're trying to create something that's accessible for new audiences. So yeah, I'm, I'm with them on that. Around for like uh, like third edition, like like D and D second edition has that problem too. But in third edition, the, every time they introduced a rule, they would have a sentence after you know, after say like people who are lose the initiative are caught flat footed. Period. Next sentence: being flat footed denies you your dex bonus to your AC. Period. They would do that every single time because yeah. they knew you didn't know this. And then they had behind the curtain circumstances where they would say, okay, as a GM, if you do this, then this will happen. That might, you know, if you increase the combat encounters, that might happen. Or if you have the, you know, the more time you roll randomly, randomness rewards the NPCs because they only have to win once. They're the underdogs in this. So if you do this, then this will happen. And they talk to you smartly about if you make these choices, this happens. It's one of the great chapters of GMing advice. And uh, yeah, you're right. I think a lot of it is, um, yeah, that's why I'm always against blame your GM. I mean, because I guess related mm. to this, like what I say about wargaming is like one of the things we're struggling with is, um, uh, um, you know, what we intend the games to be and whatnot. Like you've heard me complain that like Iron Claw was conceived as a game where you should be able to fight twenty to one odds. But the problem our, we keep running into is we as designer did not write the game accessible enough for many GMs to do that. I mean, we thought we put text in there. I can point where it is, but people aren't reading it and they aren't grokking it. And most importantly, they're not doing it. And that's mm. an onus on us. Now we're working on Vital Hearts, which will come out 
Uh, and with Vital Hearts, we're trying to put wording in here of we really, really want you to do 20 to 1 odds or 30 to 1 odds. And we don't want GMs to get scared that that's too many mobiles on the table. That's too much. We can't do that. Or my turn's going to take an hour and a half. And because my turn took an hour and a half the first time, the players got bored. I can never do this again. Let's go back to only minibot. So we're putting rules in there of narrowing down what NPC choices are, narrowing it down. Like that, that really gets into me of like what we do to help GMs lower the complexity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like D and D four had that beautiful thing where they had minions, they had guys who had one hit point, um, yeah. and they got rid of that. And you know, lots of there's lots of GMs who just wing it. Like old GMs who just I just lie about how many hit points they have. The players don't know, but novice GMs, you know, might not understand that, and players might yell at them about that. I'm the kind of player who yells at GM where I know you just hand-waved over my victory to make it uh, <laughs> not work. Yeah. And and that makes me scary as a player. And it's kind of like people could say, well, you, GM can do whatever they want. You're a bad player. Then I leave the game. And it's kind of like, what, you know, this could have been solved if we write the games closer to make them GM-friendly. If we wrote it more like Apocalypse World or Dungeon World, where, well, let's just simplify the rules so we're not even going to have this argument. Let's just write it the way people are going to play it. Yeah. So I think in terms of onboarding GMs, that's definitely something we've kind of hit on here. Red, when if you had to go ahead and give some advice to say, you know, hey, you're going to run, here's how to do it. What do you think would be the kind of first thing you would suggest people do or try to do to get into this and make it easier for themselves? Hmm. Um, Well, I think I don't know if this is the best advice. This is the advice that I have started to internalize for myself. Um, it is that if you, and it's maybe like cramming for a test, right? But if you are going to, if you have way more rules than you are going to learn before your session one, before you have to start running this game, I would highly recommend focusing on the player character sheets before anything else. Because if you think about it, really the players, your players are experiencing the game world through their characters their characters' abilities and limitations are what they know of the game. And it's a good idea that you know them too. Um, I think it's often tempting to look at a rule book and say like, oh, I got to get to the section on blood bonding, for example, in Vampire or some sort of like <laughs> esoteric system without ever realizing that your players are going to be employing uh, and expecting pa- their powers to work and to be meaningful in the game. If you didn't hit on the section where they talk about your, you know, this particular character's power of perception or of like foresight or prophecy, they're going to be sitting there expecting that their character is going to have like crazy visions and you will be left caught uh, flat footed to, to uh, steal a phrase from older versions of D&D. So that would be my off-the-top-of-the-head advice. Too often I've realized when starting games that I didn't start with the player character rules, and often I would go back and say, like, I had all of these opportunities to draw my players in through their characters and incorporate abilities that only they could do that made them special. And I didn't because I was just completely oblivious to the fact that they had those abilities to start with. So that's my advice. Start with the character sheets. Yeah, um, there you go. Uh, what do you What do you think, Rafferty? Since, since well, people do still have to play the games that are here, what advice would you throw out of them right now? I, mean, I, I, I like that advice. Uh, I'm I'm gonna try and and, and <coughs> I'm like I'm 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 also worried about the GM as a novice GM who like 
may have played the game once or twice, or in theory, someone had to be the first GM. Right. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, the first one is something that you may have noticed we put in our game, which is uh, debriefings. Uh, there's this weird thing of where there's a taboo about asking the players what they actually want to do. Isn't mm. that weird? Yeah. Just a little bit. Right. So that's why the, the goal was in games like Iron Claw, where you say, okay, you know, what's your starting goal? What do you want to do? You know, just ask them. And that's why, you know, uh, that's you started with asking them what they wanted to do the first time. And that's why there's a debriefing, uh, well, after the game, but if it's your first session before the game, just ask the player what it is they want to do. Um, you know, if they don't know, skip them. And if they do know, a lot of players will say like, hey, I'm here because I wanted to fight with Guns Akimbo. I, I, I brought that. That's what I want to do. Many players will be honest about it. Some of them, whatever. That's the first thing you can ask. Now you know. So when it happens in the game, you're not surprised. That's what we mean by build up. Ask the players what they want to do. You know, don't be scared. It, it's this, like I said, it's this weird thing where the game sets off where the GM is considered to be on some kind of throne and just tells the players what's happening. Now, games like Vampire help you because you can guess that what a Bruja wants to do is different from what a Malkavian wants to do. It, to me, you know what those are. But, you know, that helps you a little bit. Just ask your player. Uh, I'm going to go back to uh, the two other things I mentioned before uh, here and in previous. Uh, the other one is don't, I mean, I can imagine trying to read the character sheet, but it might, a lot of, if it's a D&D character sheet with four point type, mm -hmm. uh, you were going to miss the fact that I wrote down, I've got crossbows akimbo on. Um, uh, so my, my advice is uh, when a rule situation comes up, flip it around. Like if you don't know the rules, like if the players say we want to sneak into the place, just flip it around and ask, okay, what abilities do you have to do this? Some players might not have the abilities at all, um, mm -hmm. uh, but a player who came today to be a ninja and says, oh boy, do I have stealth up the wazoo, uh, is going to tell you. And that way you've solved that problem of knowing what it is they want. The other one is, like I said in the previous podcast, you're playing to lose. So if you're coming up with your own scenarios in the game, okay, then assume that the players have the abilities to overcome it. And then how would your villains or monsters or whatever react after they got theirs handed, like after mm. they were defeated? So when you put a challenge in front of them, I find that's pretty good GM advice because um, players, like if you ask, you know, tell them, okay, here's the fortress, how do you get in? And then the players succeed on getting in. What do the villains do? At, you know, well, you ask yourself when you're planning the adventure in the scenario, what would the villains do after they got in the fortress? What would the villains do after they killed the boss? What would happen after the players succeeded? Uh, a lot of pre-written adventures are written like that. But um, I mean, like after the players win, but don't assume they're going to win in a specific way. Like they might negotiate, they might do bribery, they might do something else. But that's why I say be in that mindset of you're running a bunch of NPCs who are about to get destroyed. You don't know how they're going to get destroyed, but you do. And that's why I say have that kind of attitude because I've often seen the flip side attitude where the GM is inflexible or railroading, like it's written. I've seen scenarios in the books where it's written that the villains will just win, like, like, like the, where the villains will show up, get into a fight, win the fight, and then walk away. Ah, uh, you see, I already won 42 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, or the villain shows up, attacks all of you, and then flees. That always drives me nuts because it's like, what do you mean we can't catch them? We have rangers. We, we have monks. You gave us the abilities to follow people. I have the I cast expeditious retreats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> expeditious right. pursuit. Right. Or or hold person for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. Right. I I mean, like, like, so you have to learn you, uh, the novice game is you have to learn to roll with that. 
if you yeah. immediately start railroading your players, some of your players will get frustrated and leave. I know I would. And then the players who will hang around uh, are going to suddenly become obsessed with combat. And then your game is going to become nothing but like, you know, either Grognardia or performative. And, and um, which if it becomes all combat, that can be, you might get bored as a GM. There's no emergence going on. And the scenarios always play out exactly the same way. We already mentioned as a GM, you're going to get bored. So that's why I always encourage GMs plan to lose, but lose in fun and creative ways. You're like you're here to be the big loser uh, and watch other characters who aren't yours get totally trashed and humiliated. So, you know, revel in the masochism of that and, and roll with that. And if that, that should be the attitude you take and not the attitude of, I need to kill the PC. I think that's, right. that's definitely I, strong. I think that's really good. So we definitely covered like a lot of the improvisational tools that you kind of need. And uh, a lot of the fore planning when it comes to NPCs, how the world works and how to set that up. Uh, I think uh, when it comes to judgment calls, I think it's probably very good to maybe focus on the consequences of what kind of call you're making and try to figure out which side is going to be more fun now and what mm -hmm. will be more fun later on. Because obviously, if you set down a rule and it's like, oh, well, now the every enemy is just going to kite because that's kind of the ruling that's been set down. It's like, that's not going to be fun for anyone in the future. So I think focusing on that and then working backward from what you want towards like how to make it happen is usually the better way to work. And Usually that's bad logic to start from a conclusion and then build an excuse for how it happens, but you're better at that than you think. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can see that. I think uh, there's a theme emerging here, which is that you need to uh, you need to prepare for failure, right? Or you need to prepare for... Um, that You know, there's like... Yeah. There is a good degree of guesswork that goes into it. You need to mm -hmm. stay flexible, but you also want to... Uh, you want to have a, something prepared for the most likely outcome and maybe a little bit less prepared for the unlikely outcome, but still keep it in mind. It's a very difficult thing. And I think a lot of this comes from me trying to like express years of experience. I think for all of us, probably years of experience to people who maybe I have n no experience and articulating that could be very difficult because it depends on like firsthand experience or familiarity with these concepts. Right, but, we, um, we haven't quite wrote yeah. a book about it yet ourselves. Yeah, well, not yet. That, I'm sure. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> maybe one of us. I've only written yeah. one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I do think, um, yeah, thinking about it in terms of presenting obstacles. Don't concern yourself so much with solutions because um, when you play these games, you realize that like life finds a way. Your players will come up with a solution. And as long as you are not too rigid in your interpretation, that solution will lead to more interesting situations. So, uh, yeah, think yeah, about you, you obstacles. You should open yourself up to being surprised, for sure. Yeah, I mean, this exactly. gets back to our previous podcast of Kill Your Darling. Um, yeah. Uh, a lot. There's advice every book has, but it's not very good. And they say that the GM's word is law, and that the GM has fiat. So you're supposed to change or break the rules when it makes the game more fun, period. New paragraph. What does that mean? And um, a couple of things that means is, first of all, it makes the game more fun. First of all, it makes the game go faster. If you've got like a lot of rules in there and how to repair the broken boat or reprovision stuff, or basically a bunch of stuff, you know, how to recover your hit points over time. And everyone's, everyone at the table is bored and wants to get on with it. That's when you hand wave over that. Yeah. Also, 
this is the thing I was warned about killing your darlings from the previous podcast. You cheat to make the game more fun. It's not fun to lose. So you cheat to help the players win. And the best time is when you're actually cheating. Um, you're, you know, the, 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 you, you want to be able to tweak the rules in ways players can't pick up on, which can be very difficult if you don't know the rules and they know the rules better than you. But if you're cheating in the rules, you, you have it, it's almost always better to cheat to let the players win. Because if you cheat to make a player lose, they'll become confused. They'll say, I thought this was going to work and it didn't. And they'll yeah. pick up on that. And if you don't know the rules very well, they'll pick up on it before you do. Oh, yeah. So um, um, I know there's a lot of time about rules lawyering where players will cheat when it's in their favor and not when they're not. But you're the GM. You can cheat whenever you want. And the, the goal is, is your goal is to, you know, be fair, build up, have fun. So mm-hmm. uh, it, even though you have the power to hand wave over things and to edit rules and, and get those out, ask yourself, how does this make it more fun for my player? Yes, you as the GM are also supposed to have fun. I've had people argue before the GMEs have in the right. But if the players aren't having fun, you know, you're the one with the omnipotent storytelling. If you want to have fun and not have to listen to anyone, go write a book. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. That should be. I mean, it shouldn't be a, a podcast topic because it would literally just be us reiterating the same thing over and over. But uh, yeah, role playing games are not linear stories. They're not prescribed. Or... Yeah deterministic well, and, you know and also, well i mean i don't i don't think that this gets into performative where i uh, you know i would argue that many of the ones that you see streamed online are like that mm. and, and mm. railroading might necessarily but 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 stopping your players from doing what they want to do is not fun many players will be yeah. happy with a railroaded adventure as long as they get to express themselves and be a cool sexy milkabian cobbled or whatever uh, you know, <laughs> if they're having fun being that, they might not care about the narrative flow as long as they can role play. And that's fine. I mean, the trick here is the yeah. GM, is, like we already talked about, let your players bring it out. That's also why I emphasize the debriefing. If players catch you cheating or something like that, or have questions about why you change certain rules a certain way, you can discuss it and learn. And that's why yeah. that's why I love to have games where we have a structured debriefing. That way, if you want to keep the game going, you're a little worried. You can say, look, I know... This is weird now, but let's dis- let's make time to discuss it later, and then pointedly make time to discuss it later, and, and have an open yeah. dialogue. You're all here to have fun. I would say that's probably a universal social style of medicine is communication, and almost every situation will improve things for you. So I, I'm a big fan of the debrief. I think that's actually really good. Having constant yeah. communication with your players is a good thing. In yeah, absolutely. Case. Communication and understanding. We're seeing a lot of discourse here where people are saying, why would someone want to do that? It's kind of like, look, if they're at your table and they came to play your game, you have a choice to make. You either do it the way they, you know, do it in a way that makes them have fun or not, and then ask them to leave. You're not going to do it in a way that makes them have fun. If you can't communicate and come to an understanding, you know, they can't be at your gaming table. And if you're a game designer, well, just tell people don't buy your game. No one wants to, you know, well, that, right. that of fish. and no one wants to say that don't buy D and D. So I suppose let's go ahead and move into some concluding remarks then there. So red, what do you have to go ahead and end things off on? Yeah, you had to, I had something too, and I'm, I'm desperately trying to remember what it was. Oh uh, no. <laughs> did Raph want to go first this time? Um, I feel like I always lead it I'll, off. I'll go really quickly. Your players are more afraid of you than you are of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like As that. DM, you have you have infinite bad guys, infinite resources, up to and including you're allowed to cheat. 
That's why my advice mm -hmm. is, you know, the players are intimidated and scared by that. They've got the one character that you can kill at any time. So regardless of the game, listen to your players. And like I always say, like improv and building up always works. You know, when something happens in the game, you don't necessarily know the rules. Ask them. Are you, And if they cheat the first time, who cares? Go read the rules. Once again, no one cares about cheating. I'm watching all of these streams. <laughs> people are doing everything wrong. And it's driving me nuts. But everybody likes to watch it. So we're all having fun. That's the future. Fun. Yeah, and I think I probably have to reiterate uh, what you said there a little bit, Raph, where the, the reason that you're all here, that you are hanging out with your friends, is to have fun. And if you're not having a fun experience, you're in control of that. Make a decision to ha let them have more fun. Just let them do it. It's fine. No, no one's going to lower your D&D &D score over it. Well, I might, but who cares? Yeah, well, you know, the Raffi scoreboard is lower than everyone else's. Yeah. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna piggyback off of what you guys said because I think it's all great advice. I was thinking about what I think maybe the defining feature between like a, a newbie GM and an experienced GM is. I think what it boils down to is that you are creating in both cases, you are creating obstacles, you're creating challenges and situations. And I think when you're creating those situations and you know that regardless of what the players choose, the outcome will be exciting and interesting, that's when you know you've graduated. So that's the goal. Uh, think about framing things. Use all of the tools that Rafferty and Griff just pointed out um, and work on it. And with experience, you'll start to know what is going to lead to more fun and more interesting and intrigue intriguing situations so that's my like <laughs> that's my like intermediary intermediate gm advice i guess um there you go yeah so i think that's gonna go ahead and include it for this episode of notes from the aleph uh we stream episodes bi-weekly fridays at 2 p.m eastern standard time you can come join us live at twitch at twitch.tv slash practice we also stream and record weekly tabletop games at the same channel you can come join us when we start at 10 a.m 2 p.m and 6 p.m eastern standard time on sundays and wednesdays norman rafferty here is partner and writer for sanguine games check out sanguinegames.com and join us on the right on twitter and look forward to the upcoming book of corals iron claw expansion book where you can have your own pirate adventures and don't forget to check out Red Rabbit and book him for a game over on startplayinggames.com as Red Rabbit. And be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and come see us all again. So until next time.